You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning. My name is Jenna. I'll be reading from Matthew 14, 1 through 13. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to, be, to a desolate place by himself. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, let's pray. We'll dig into this together. God, we thank you for your word and speaking to us. We thank you for the truth that it brings. And we thank you that you've given to uh, your word to us, your truth to us out of love, that you love us so much that you speak truth to us. And so we pray that today as we receive what it has to say, that we would experience your love as we embrace your truth. And that we would sit under, God, your authority above all else. And that that would be a place of life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This week I was reading an article about Elon Musk in The New Yorker, and I confess I don't really think a whole lot about Elon Musk. Uh, You know, I'm not a rocket scientist, so I don't, you know, the SpaceX thing, right? Uh, I I don't own a Tesla, right? I I don't have a Twitter account. Oh, sorry, an X account for for those of you guys who are on there. Uh, But this article... It blew my mind. I could not believe some of the things that it was telling me about Elon Musk and about how the U.S. government is basically groveling at his feet due to their dependency on some of his businesses, some of the products that his businesses have. So, for example, the environmental agencies are kind of subject to his electric vehicle network that they've created through... Uh, Tesla, and including the plugs that he, the proprietary plugs that they've used, I guess, as I understand it anyway, from this article. But probably the biggest one that was so surprising to me was that the fate of the war in Ukraine 
was hanging on his good graces because SpaceX had been called on to basically give free their network, their internet network, to the Ukrainian military because the Ukrainian military had it all kind of infiltrated by the Russians. And so without SpaceX, the Ukrainian military would not be able to function. It's crazy to think about. And as I was hearing the, reading these stories, I couldn't help but think about the same framework I've been thinking about with this story that we're going to be looking at today, this, this framework of power and authority, how these things can be used for good, but also when in the wrong hands or when they are given in too strong a measure, it can be extremely dangerous and it can be extremely unpredictable. See, that's much of what's going on in this story today. What we see Herod the Tetrarch do is actually par for the course when it comes to the sinful, human, the, the sinful use of human authority. We see Herod go toe-to-toe with God's authority through God's word and God's chosen prophet. But as we look at Jesus, and we'll get to Jesus through this story, as we look at his life, as we look at his kingdom, we see that his ways are upside down from the ways that power and authority is used in this world. And through his gospel, through Jesus and the story of his life, the joy that we find in him, it actually leads us to examine both how we respond to the authority of God's word it's something that Herod wouldn't do, but it also causes us to examine how we use whatever power God has given to us, whatever authority he's given to us. And so we're going to ask this question as we go through it. I want you to just be meditating on this question. How, or sorry, does our relationship to authority reflect King Jesus? Does my relationship to authority reflect King Jesus? Let's, let's look at this story now, beginning with verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. We've got to pause here already and ask the question, who is Herod? You guys ready for a bit of a history lesson? Everybody psyched about history? I, I love it. I think it's really fascinating. And it's really important in the context of this story. And if you're like me, you may have studied the Bible extensively, and you're just like, who the heck is Herod, man? This guy keeps showing up in all kinds of different places. And, and there are at least three rulers in the Bible named Herod. And on top of that, it's not always clear which one they're talking about because it doesn't always give you context for who they are. And it doesn't help that Herod the Great, who's kind of the beginner of this big dynasty, uh, who died, he died shortly after Jesus was born a few years later, he named several of his sons Herod, and several of them named their sons Herod, and one of them even named his daughter Herodias, okay? So, and we're going to be introduced to her in just a moment. Okay, I still haven't answered the question, though. Who is Herod? This Herod here in this story is a guy named Herod Antipas. And it says here that he's the Tetrarch. A Tetrarch would have been a governor of a country or a province in the Roman Empire. So he's a governor. What exactly does that mean? What, what authority did this Herod have? Well, for 42 years he ruled, only uh, after his father's death when he was 17 years old. And he ruled, had jurisdiction over the whole region of Galilee where Jesus was from, 
and where Jesus was at this time teaching, but also Perea, which is modern-day Jordan. And so Herod the Great died, and he divided his kingdom uh, among three of his sons, including this guy, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was a guy who was partially ethnically Jewish, but he also wanted to put on a show and look like he was also religiously Jewish. But truthfully, he was just doing it to earn political points with the Jewish people, just to kind of make sure that they weren't too upset with him. And dude was on Caesar's payroll, so he's not really a a faithful Jew, if you will. And so that's Herod. And Herod heard about Jesus, and verse 2, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod, here's all these rumors about this, these miracles, this amazing power that Jesus has, and he thinks to himself, this has got to be John the Baptist. But hold up, Matthew, we haven't heard about John the Baptist in a while, right? Some of us may have forgotten who this dude was. Who was John the Baptist? Well, uh, he, he wasn't a Southern Baptist, okay? Wasn't a missionary Baptist, wasn't conservative Baptist. He was Baptist General Conference, okay? Just kidding. Okay, I'm glad somebody laughed because I was like, I don't know if anybody's even heard of these denominations. Okay, no, he wasn't a Baptist like we think of. He was a guy who baptized. That's why that's his nickname, John the Baptist. He even baptized Jesus himself. Now, you may remember that John was, in a sense, he was like the last Old Testament prophet. He was the forerunner to Jesus. His job, given to him by God, was to prepare Israel for the kingdom of heaven coming through the Messiah. And so John is a wonderful person. We love John. And, And so when we hear this news, we're taken back because it's like, hey, Matthew, did you just say John the Baptist is dead? You haven't even told us this story. And it's almost like Matthew can kind of hear the wheels turning in our head and that question being asked. And he's like, oh, yeah, let me get, let me get back to that story. And this is the story of John the Baptist's death, beginning in verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias... His brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, that is, Herod wanted to put John the Baptist to death, Herod feared the people because they held John, that is, to be a prophet. Okay, story of John the Baptist's death begins with John opposing this powerful man, Herod. And Herod doesn't want to hear it. His uh, relationship, perhaps it's a marriage, to Herodias, John says, is not lawful. How so? How is this not lawful? Well, this is crazy, guys. First off, it was incestuous. Okay, Herodias was also Antipas's niece from his half-brother. So just think about that for a minute. But then additionally, John, it says, was critical of this relationship because this was Herod's brother's, his half-brother's wife. 
And so this marriage, it was doubly unlawful by God's standards. God would not have approved of that. And so John speaks up as a prophet. John, think about this, he had authority over the governor. Okay? He had authority over the governor. Why? Because the highest authority on earth is God. If you don't believe me, just consider this. God is the author of life, and so he has the highest authority, okay? It makes total sense. And as a prophet, John had authority to him, granted to him by God, to speak on God's behalf. And so all positions, who, all people who hold positions of authority are really, in the end, accountable to God and Herod was then also accountable to John. But Herod didn't want to be accountable to God. He didn't want to be accountable to anyone. He thought, Herod thought, he was above the law. Herod thought he was above the law of God. And so John did what all prophets do. John, in preparing the way for the Messiah, his job was to call God's people back to God, call God's people back to the covenant with God, the relationship that they had with God. And so what did John do? He called out injustice, he called out wickedness, and and he appealed to God's law found in Scripture as the right way forward. If you think about this, this scenario is very controversial in our day and age. Think about this. For someone to be a prophet, they have to speak truth, right? Without wavering, which means that there has to be some objective moral truth, and they have access to it. As Christians, friends, we have the same access that John did to objective moral truth. It's right here. It's right here in the Scripture. And we're told that since God sent His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled that Christians now can prophesy. It says there that old men and young men and old women and young women are going to be able to prophesy, to speak the truth of God. Church, our job as a community is to prophetically call the world to God and His ways. Let me say that again. Our job as a community is to prophetically call the world to God and His ways. Do you believe that? If you believe that, say amen. We're called to prophetically call the world to God and His ways. I was recently reading a church's description of how they practice membership, and I really liked it. I was almost like, oh, copy-paste. I like that a lot. I'm going to steal that. Here's what they said. Uniting our hearts in worship, serving each other and the world, this is, again, how they practice membership, practicing our faith together in ways that build up the body of Christ, so we're, we're contributing to build up the body of Christ as a church, and here, catch this, and prophetically bearing witness against the false beliefs and false gods of our culture. Think about that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's actually our job as the church? This is so 
true, but oftentimes the church neglects this calling. Why, why do we neglect this calling? I, I think maybe the first one we can give, first reason we can give is what we talked actually about last week, which is just fear. We're, we're afraid to ruffle people's feathers. But there is another reason, and this is the reason that I want to spend a few moments exploring with you, if you will just go with me here. Why else might we neglect the call to be God's prophetic voice in the world? I think the reason is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It's why our prophetic voice is quieted. You see, the messenger and the message must be one and the same. Think about this in the context of John the Baptist. His role as a prophet would have been unfounded. It would have been dismantled if John were embezzling his ministry's income, right? If, if John were a womanizer and he had all these mistresses, or if John were a controlling, manipulative, abusive leader, he would no longer have had the authority that God had sought to give him. In other words, his authority would have been handed over to all those false gods of money and sex and power. And friends, sadly, the church has exchanged the prophetic authority that Jesus has delegated to us as his ambassadors for the gods of this world. Do you believe that Jesus has delegated his authority to us as his ambassadors? Second Corinthians 5 tells us that we are God's ambassadors, that our job is to just tell people the gospel so that they can be reconciled to God, right? And we have handed that over, that right, in exchange for the false beliefs and the false gods of our culture. How can we speak to the injustice in the world when we neglect the poor ourselves or when we are blind to the vulnerable? How can we call people to God's moral standard when we so blatantly choose to live by the standards of this world? We throw away our authority. And you know what? The world recognizes this. They do. They see it because there, there actually are two kinds of authority. There's the one that's just objective. God gives it to you, right? But then there's also the subjective. It's more the horizontal one of like people see you as an authority. Think about this. What kinds of authority do people in our day and age actually trust? Well, we don't trust institutions. Nope. Don't trust governments. Don't trust corporations. Don't trust organized religion. Who do people actually trust as authorities? Anyone? Social media influencers, right? That's, that's who has all the authority. People see them as authorities. Why? Because it's their ethos. It's their life, and you can see it right there. Think, consider an influencer on Instagram, for example, right? Their channel, say, say it's all about being healthy. And what do you do? You watch them wake up and make a kale shake for breakfast, right? You watch them, as their day goes on, make a kale shake for lunch, 
kale shake for dinner, right? You watch them do their yoga routine. Why? Why do you listen to them? Why do you listen to their advice on how to get healthy? It's because their lifestyle gives them authority. You want what they have, right? Why do you want what they have? Because you can see it. You can see that it works. And friends, as Christians, we need to learn from this. We need to learn that our, the way we live our lives actually matters when it comes to the message that we're trying to share about the gospel. Do our lives actually look like the Jesus we worship? If not, our message is going to be ignorable. Now you might think, oh, that's not true. That's not how it's supposed to work. The church is supposed to be this hospital for sinners, right? Not a museum for saints. And, and of course, there is some truth to that statement. Hospitals, or sorry, church is not supposed to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And, and there is truth to that because if, if the church isn't a place where sinners can come, then nowhere is. Amen? As we sang earlier, this song, Come Ye Sinners, right? We want to, we want to return to the arms of God. We want to come to Him. God is a God of radical acceptance and grace. And so if you are a prodigal son today, if you are a person who is wayward and running far from God, today is your invitation. Come back. As we sang, come to His open arms. Arise and go to Jesus. I hope that at Trinity, we can be a place that helps you return to him, that, that, that is a hospital for sinners. But as the author Elliot Clark says, he says a hospital is only a good place if there's medicine and a remedy. And church, we have a remedy. It's not just Jesus' saving grace, it's also his transforming grace. And so, yes, we are all broken sinners in, in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus, becoming more like Him. But if He's actually the Redeemer that we claim Him to be, our lives should look different. Our lives should show off both His saving grace and His transforming grace. Our lives should be holy. And then, and only then, do we have the prophetic authority that God has given to us? We have the privilege then of humbly and gently speaking the truth in love, calling out evil and injustice where we see it, like John the Baptist, like he did. We can then speak from a place of authority when the message aligns with the messenger, right? Now, coming back to John, we were hearing the story of how John died. And John uh, spoke out against Herod and Herodias' unlawful relationship, and then he got silenced for it. But, that's next verse, verse 6. When Her Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So picture the scene here. Everybody's, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Herod, happy birthday to you, right? And everybody, of course, is in the court. It's not a king's court, but it's sort of like a king's court, right? And they're probably drinking and eating excessive amounts. And, 
Everybody's probably inebriated. I'm guessing Herod himself was drunk. He's probably a bit loose. And out comes Salome is her name. We don't see her name here. History tells us her name is Salome, Herodias' daughter. Why does she come out at the prompting of her mom? And what does she come out to do? She comes out to dance. Solome would have been Herod's stepdaughter if he ends up marrying Herodias. But she also would have been his grandniece through blood. Think about that. And here she is, she's dancing, she's, she's a young girl, we know through history, she's probably 12 to 14 years old. And we might, with trepidation, ask the question, what sort of dancing is this? Most Bible scholars say that in that debased setting, it was likely a sensual dance. Doesn't that make you sick? It definitely should. And on top of that, it says that it pleased Herod. What does that mean? It meant that he was satisfied, it says, and it's not explicit, but it's probably sexual. Very, very disturbing. And it pleased Herod to the extent, it tells us in Mark's gospel, that he, he, tell, he says to uh, Solome, you can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And so this is the moment of truth. This is the moment where all the pieces of the story begin to come together. What is she going to ask for? Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Herodias has been looking for an opportunity for revenge. That's what she wants. Now she's got it. She thought to herself, how dare that prophet try and tell me what to do? He has no right. He doesn't have authority over me. I'm a princess. I'll show him who's boss. Which... When you say it like that, it sounds kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? It sounds a bit absurd. It sounds like a bad Disney movie. I'm a princess. Nobody gets to tell me what to do, right? And yet that is exactly what's going on. And before we stand back and point the finger at Herodias, we've got to consider for ourselves that this is not far from the way that our culture sees the world, right? Who is God to try and tell me what to do? He doesn't have authority over me. His truth is not my truth. And I'd like to propose to you that this is part of why our culture has decided that God doesn't exist. It's just a lot easier that way. If he's not real, we don't have to deal with his authority over us. If he's just a myth, then truth is up to me. I'm subject to no one. Yay! Truth is subject to me. And because this is just the water that we're swimming in as a culture, I want to ask you to consider with me for a few moments, if you would. What do you do when you're confronted with the truth of God's word? Do you respond like Herodias and Herod? 
How would you know? How would you know if you were, you were responding like them? I'm going to give you three examples of how I think we might respond similarly. Do you self-justify? Like, yeah, I know it says that I'm not supposed to do that, but what I'm doing really isn't that bad. And no one can keep all the standards of Scripture. I mean, it's really it's God's fault that I'm doing this. He just made it too hard. Is that how you respond? Or next, do you twist his word to fit to your standards? Like, yeah, I know someone told me that God says you're not supposed to eat too much, but did God really say? And I don't, I don't know how much I've had. I mean, or I know someone said that this sexual activity is sinful, but then this other person wrote this book. And in this book, they told me that it doesn't have that word in the Greek. So therefore, I'm going with them. Do you twist God's word to fit your standards? Or maybe the last way I'm going to give you as an example. Do you silence God's spirit in your life? It's just like, yes, I know that God says that. I know, Lord, you're telling me that this is your law, that this is your will. But la, 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 our heart should actually be the exact opposite from those things. Exact opposite. Why? Because we know that we find life in his word, don't we? We know that there's actually a direct correlation between living in the will of God and the amount of joy that we have in our lives. Can I get an amen, church? Do you believe that? We know that God loves us and that his truth is actually an expression of that love. That his truth is not in contradiction to his love. And so we welcome his instruction. We actually pursue it. Because as Christians, we, we've had our sins forgiven. We've had our sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We've, we've been given his spirit to dwell within us. And, and the Bible says to write his word on our hearts so that we become more like Jesus And so instead of this self-justifying, instead of twisting his word or silencing his truth, we're actually free now to come and and seek it out, to go to anyone who, who we might have in our life and say, do you see anything in my life that needs to come under the authority of God's truth, of his word? It could be anybody Do you see anything that that needs to change? We pursue truth whenever we can get at it. You know, that's part of why we spend so much time in God's Word together every week. Some of you guys are like, yeah, we're spending a lot of time in it this week. Uh, This is why we do this. It's because we want to sit under the authority of God and His Word. The psalmist tells us it's like a stream that we've planted ourselves by. It's where we find life. It's where we find life. I'm so grateful to be a pastor at a church that loves the truth of God and loves sitting under the authority of his word. But that was obviously not the heart of Herodias, right? Herodias rejected the will of God to the point of choosing incest, to the point of choosing 
adultery, to the point of choosing murder, it didn't matter because she wanted to do what she wanted to do. Just like Herod, same things, incest, adultery, murder. He abused the authority that God had given to him. He wanted autonomy. And if that's the case, if Herod wanted autonomy, why then does it say here that he's sorry? Did you see that? Can we go back to that really quick? It says that he's sorry. What is that? Verse 9. Why does it say that he's sorry? Sorrow actually seems appropriate in this instant, doesn't it? And the answer is, he's sorry because of his fear. Back in verse 5, it said that Herod didn't want to kill John because he was afraid of the people. Is He was afraid that they would, he'd be unpopular or they would revolt or that they would kill him or at least make his life difficult. But for now, he's also afraid of how he'll look in front of this group of people, in front of his guests. He's got party people in the house, right? And he's afraid of what would, what would they think if I went back on my word? I said I would give her anything. What would they think if I refused to kill someone who disrespected my authority? It's like, I don't want to appear to be a coward in front of my guests here. And so what does Herod do? Verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head, John's head, was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. In our family's recent trip to Europe, we toured the Louvre Museum in Paris, as it were, I'm trying to sound like I speak French. Um, and the, if you don't know of the Louvre, it's, it's where all kinds of famous paintings are, including the Mona Lisa, it's probably the most famous painting that's there. And I saw this painting by Bernardo Luini. If we can go to it. And I was just, I just had to stare at that for a while. Take a look at that. That's John the Baptist's head on a platter. They're setting it on the platter. And I think this illustration we should have in our minds for what happens when people oppose the truth of God, the lengths that people are willing to go to to avoid sitting under the authority of God and his word. And we look at this and we just think it's so gruesome, right? It's kind of brutal when you think about it. His, his head is lifeless. It's the color has changed. You can see very clearly why his head is kind of the question I was asking this week. Probably a few reasons, but perhaps the greatest one is it's one of the most humiliating ways for someone to die. It doesn't get much more powerless than to have your head removed. And it is right for us to see this as gruesome and barbaric, but we have to be careful, friends. We have to be careful because left to our own devices, we are just as capable of evil as Herod was. Can I get an amen to that? Are we just as capable, especially as it pertains to rejecting God's word, rejecting God's truth, especially as it pertains to the places where we have authority? You might say, well, I don't really have any positions of authority. I don't know if that's true. Think about this. 
I'll give you a few examples, starting with one that I think about a lot for myself, examples of authority that we might have. For me, as a pastor and as an elder, I think about this a lot. Hebrews 13, 17 says, I'm going to give an account before the judgment seat of Jesus for how I've led and shepherded. Very heavy. A lot of joy in being able to be a pastor, but it's also a lot of weight. It's a joyful weight that I get to carry by the grace of God. And the same is true for you in whatever places of authority you might have. Maybe you don't think of it that way. Maybe you're a healthcare worker and you have authority over your patients. They trust you, they do what you tell them to do. It's a place of authority. Or maybe you're a parent and you have kids or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a nanny or even a teacher right? You have a place of authority. Maybe you're a business owner or a supervisor of employees. You have authority. Maybe you're that health influencer that I talked about on Instagram earlier. I'd love to meet you after the service. (laughs) Hear about your kale shakes. You have a place of authority in people's lives. And so this story that we have just read and that image that we just saw, it should cause us to frequently and soberly examine how we are using the authority that we do have. Sure, Herod was evil beyond what we could possibly imagine doing, and that's good, good. We shouldn't be able to possibly imagine doing that. But are we reflecting King Jesus in our places of authority? Are we acting in honesty? Are we acting with integrity? Are we caring for the people that we have authority over? Are we showing wholehearted devotion to Jesus in the places where we have authority? We must remember that apart from Jesus, we could be just like Herod. And so we got to stay close to Jesus in these places where we have authority. Concluding with the epilogue of the story, it wraps up in verse 12 in the beginning of 13. It says, and his, that's John's disciples, came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard about this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. John's disciples are grieving. They're grieving. They want him to at least have a dignified burial, even if he didn't get a dignified death. And Jesus is perhaps responding along with John's disciples here. He withdraws to a lonely place, a desolate place. You could even consider Jesus himself as somewhat one of John's disciples, baptized by John, right? But Jesus was also John's friend. Jesus was also John's cousin. John was miraculously conceived only six months before Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in, in Mary's womb. And so this has got to be a major hit for Jesus, a major loss, not least of which because he knew that this event would also be the trigger for the events leading to his own unjust murder. You see, John's job was not only to prepare the way for Jesus in a general sense, like we talked about, but as a prophet. John would have called people back to God's covenant, including people in power, called people back to repentance despite the threats to his own life, didn't deter him, and Jesus 
would do the same thing. John was like a prefigure of Jesus. And Jesus would meet a similar fate in his death. And yet, Jesus' death would also accomplish far more than John's death. Jesus, through his death, he would take the full weight of human wickedness upon himself. In his body on the cross, Jesus bore all the human disregard for God, all the disregard for God's authority, all the disregard for God's law, all the disregard for God's truth. Jesus died for your autonomy and mine. Amen? He died for your misuse of authority and mine. And though John's resurrection won't happen until ours does on the last day, Jesus' resurrection occurred only three days later, and he rose victoriously over all the spiritual powers, including the evil human powers that stood behind all of what's happened in this story, the, the evil powers behind the scenes with Herod and Herodias and all this madness. And Jesus in his resurrection proved he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we want to respond to him. We want to worship him. I want to give you some instructions for how we can do that. uh, And then we'll look at how we can do that in this service. One way that we can respond to Jesus is in our community groups as we gather together. Let's look at these questions. How do you respond to the authority of God's word? How are you using the authority you have been given. And then number two, last week I told you that the spiritual discipline I want to practice in our groups this month are, uh, was going to be sharing our faith. Well, I want to do something different. <laughs> I didn't anticipate this. I want to spend some time, maybe save 30 minutes, just to pray for those in authority. Pray for the governmental leaders. Pray for the business leaders. Pray for the parents and the you know, teachers and everybody who has any kind of authority. And now I'm going to pray and we'll respond to God together. Father, we thank you for this word, this truth that we can recognize that, God, you are in authority above all else. And even leaders like Herod who try and thwart your authority, in the end, they end up losing. They end up defeated. It ends up all being futile because, God, you're just that good. You can even use their evil for your good. Thank you, God, for using evil for good through your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we just proclaim you have all power. Jesus, you have all authority. You have authority over everything on earth, and you especially have authority over us. Would you come and reign? Would you come and have your way with us, Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.